open your Bibles, if you will, to Joel, the Old Testament, Joel chapter one. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning on this thought, what to do when gladness and joy are cut off. What to do when gladness and joy are cut off. We're beginning a series this week that will last us over the next several weeks uh, from this, this minor prophet in the Old Testament, Joel. And um, he, he's, uh, he's giving the people a warning, so to speak. Uh, the reality is they had, by the time he writes to them, they had already had quite a wake-up call, quite a warning. And uh, it came in the form of really what, what you might call just a plague, um, similar to the ones in the book of Exodus where, um, where God was getting his people out of Egypt. This plague, though, came upon God's people in uh, the nation of Judah. And uh, I, I had an introduction, but I wanted to change it this morning. Um, I was standing out, uh, standing out on the doorsteps of the church this morning, getting ready for, um, for people as they were coming in and getting ready to welcome people. And, and uh, some of us gather together early in the morning and we go back to the prayer room and we pray over the service. And uh, we pray for you. We pray that God would move in this place. And right before we, we went back there, um, I looked down and there on the doorstep was a dead grasshopper. Um, and I saw that, and of course, the guys that were standing with me, they didn't know exactly what I was preaching on this morning. Um, and I look at them and I, I looked down, I saw this, I looked up and I said, well, that's kind of an ominous sign. And they said, why? And I said, because the, the message today talks about a, a, uh, an invasion of a horde of locusts, which are um, very similar to grasshoppers. And uh, in fact, some places in, in God's word, it translates them as grasshoppers. And I looked down and of course I picked that thing up. One of them told me, bring it up into the pulpit and show the church. And I thought uh, that might be a good idea. I don't know if y'all be able to see it from here. I don't have it with me. It's out on the doorstep if you wanna see it. Um, but uh, there that locust or there that grasshopper was as a, as a sign, so to speak. Now you say, preacher, are you saying that God sent that grasshopper to die right there? No, probably not, but um, let's, uh, let's use it as a great reminder this morning. Uh, this passage, Joel opens up speaking to what appears to be a current event, and that is an invasion of a horde of locusts that literally wiped everything green off the land, or ate, I guess you should say, everything green off the land. And it, it brought in a lot of destruction, devastation, if you will. The original title of this message was Devastation Unto All. I thought it was um, just as fitting to see later in the passage where it talks about the cutting off of joy and gladness. And that uh, was a stark reminder to us that joy and gladness can be cut off. And so this morning, I wanna read this passage, Joel chapter one, beginning in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. That's not a good warning, is it? <laughs> Tell your sons about it and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. 
and what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also in the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up the sun, from the sons of men. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of your God. Let's read that again, underline it, highlight it, make note of it, write it in your sermon notes and write it on your heart. Has not food been cut off from before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant, pant for you, for the water brooks are dry up and fire has devoured the pastures of wilderness. Boy, that's a pretty somber passage, pretty grim outlook, not only where they were, but the future in front of them was not very bright either. And as the people here we're, we're experiencing this. And, and by the way, the, the, the reading of the text is as if the locusts, have, they've already come and the destruction is already complete over the land. 
But keep in mind this church, in an agricultural community like this, this was a devastation not for this year, but for many years to come. Indeed, it was an accurate thing to say that joy and gladness were cut off from the house of the Lord because things were not looking very good at this point. And as the people begin to face the reality of where they're at, and the, the, the reality sets in that the joy and gladness were cut off. We look at what is Joel's appeal to the people. What are they to do when they face this kind of a situation and this kind of a devastation? You know, often in life, we experience these kind of things. Where, where joy and gladness get cut off, where we find ourselves in a, a dark hole or a dark pit. The world seems to close in around us and, and, and things just seem to be grim and, and dark and, and the, the, it's, just, it's just rough. You put a smile on your face, but in your heart, the smile doesn't exist. And, and you hope that things could get better, but you look into your life and you look into the future as best as you can and you think, I don't know how it can get better. And these times come for all of us. These times come for people as individuals, for families. They come in, in work. They come in, our, in our, our country and in our world. And in these type of grim times, we must remember who to turn to for hope. So this morning, let's look at what to do when gladness and joy are cut off. As we walk through this passage, the first thing that I want you to notice in these first verses is that the times had changed. The, the, the times had changed, things were different. What was is now uh, completely different from the past. In fact, he opens this passage and he makes an a, a appeal to the elders, the people in the, in the nation that had been around long enough to have enough memory and enough history to be able to answer this question. And he says to them, has this ever happened in your days or the days of your parents? And so they, they look around them, they look around the world and the, the question put out to them is, when was the last time it was this bad? You know, I, I watched a, a, a video this last week and um, somebody was, was sharing this, this concept and they said, um, realistically speaking, in the last few years, we've gone through the Spanish flu of the early 1900s. Then we've gone through um, the Great Depression of the 1930s. We're on the brink of potential war, it seems always, of the, the great wars, World War I and World War II, and then the social unrest of the 1960s, and they've all merged to right now. And we look around and, and we accurately could look around in our world and we could ask those in our congregation that have been on this planet the longest and say, has it ever been like this in all of your days? Or have you ever heard your parents? Was it ever like this in any of their days? And truly the answer on the one hand would be, well, yeah, this isn't the worst time in the history of all of the world. And surely things have been bad before, but then at the same time, we could also answer, you know, these are unusual times. 
and things are different than they've ever been before. And perhaps there's never, at least in the, the history of our country, there's ever been a, an intersection of all of the different things that we have, crises that we have in our world than what we're, we're experiencing right now. And, and while yes, there's been times where things have been bad before, there's been times where things have been really bad. We have been blessed as a people to experience a great amount of prosperity in our nation and the, the outlook that we face right now is grim. And then personally in our lives, we look around and we see how, how um, for many that we know, gladness and joy, we could say have been cut off. Of course, we know that gladness comes from within and it's not an exterior thing. It's not a, an external thing. It's what's within us. But at the same time, we do look around and we say, yes, I, I see the, the hurt, I see the sorrow, I see the, the challenges and the trials that people that we love, people that we care for are facing, that many of us are facing. And so as we, we look in this passage, yes, the times have changed. I, I love in, in verses two and verses three, as Joel opens up his prophecy, he makes a reference backwards. He says, have any of you that are of the elders, have any of you heard of this before? And then he, he, he extends it even one generation past that. This would be the, the active memory of, or collective active memory of the congregation to remember not just what was in our days, but what had been firsthand told to us um, by those who in one generation previously had passed away. And then he pushes it forward. He says this in verse three, tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. Why? Because something like this should not be forgotten. We should not so soon let the memory of trials, let the memory of suffering, let the memory of the pains of this life fade away. But yet we do so easily, don't we? We, we do let the, the, the trials of the past slip into the past. That's why we always talk about the good old days. We forget those days were not as good maybe as we thought they were. And so here he opens up his, his, his prophecy by letting the people know, listen, times have changed. This is an interesting prophetic book in that it's, it's rare because there's no um, direct tie to the timeline of the nation of Israel in this book. And, and estimates as to when exactly it was written and what period of Israel's history it was written vary anywhere from the early days of the kingdom, okay, um, all the way through to the late days of the kingdom and the divided kingdom, and then the um, period of exile and some even to the after the exile when the people had returned to the land. And so there's a, a, a wide, wide variety of people and, and times when this is estimated to be. The, the best we can get by looking internally in this book is um, seeing some clues and some things that help us to narrow down the window, which I believe would be sometime after the fall of the Northern kingdom of Israel, but before the fall of the Southern kingdom of Judah. And it appears that this, um, this prophecy was written and directed at the Southern kingdom. There's some clues in the, um, as, as far as the gathering of the people to Zion, to, to Jerusalem, which wouldn't have been a call in the Northern kingdom. And so we, we look at these clues and what we see is this. We see that Jerusalem still had walls and a temple at the time that Joel wrote this, 
Um, it would be highly unlikely that that would be so late that it was after Nehemiah and Ezra when they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls. Um, we also see some references to the scattering of the, the Israelite nation, um, which could have taken, could have been referring to the Northern kingdom being scattered and conquered by Assyria. Um, it could also be that this is so late in Judah's writing that it was after the first time that um, Jerusalem had been attacked uh, by Babylon, and some of the people had already been carried off into exile. Um, but the reality is we do see in, in the book of Joel some reference to the scattering and then the future regathering of, of Israel at that time. The entire book seems to frame a relatively weak nation, a, a nation that is very vulnerable, a nation that was indeed, as we know now, on the brink of collapse and being overrun. So all these signs point to this being at a time period after Judah had experienced its, its great days, certainly after the great days of um, Saul and David and Solomon, and even the days after the kingdom divided and Judah was still a fairly uh, prosperous nation at that point. And it seems to be much later than that. It's highly possible that this was um, after the time of the majority of the good kings of Judah and getting into that time period when more and more of the kings were ones that did evil in the sight of the Lord. Kings like Manasseh, who was called one of the, the most wicked of all the kingdom. And so it's highly likely, we can't exactly pinpoint this, but what we do know is the nation was in a difficult time. They were not as strong as they used to be. They were not as powerful as they used to be. The times had changed. We know that the nation's heart was turned away from the Lord. They did not worship the Lord exclusively. They did not, in, in many senses, even worship the Lord much at all. And then the lament for those who were faithful was that the sacrifices were cut off from the house of the Lord because of this devastation from this plague of locusts that came in. And so the times had been turned upside down. They'd been transformed in such a way that the people were looking around at each other and saying, what are we gonna do? What, what could we possibly do to make this better? And here's the key to this. There's nothing that you and I can do to make it better. It has to come from the Lord God. We have no power to, to control the things in this world and the things in our life that externally make things better. You say, wait a minute, we, we, can, we can do some social good and make our, our world a better place to live. But listen, it's really not making things better if it's apart from Jesus Christ. And so as we look, we realize that yes, the times have changed. And we do have to at times look around and realize our helplessness and our hopelessness apart from the power of Jesus Christ. The times have changed. This first part of the, 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 the prophecy of Joel, a, a short book, but this first chapter that we read is indeed a wake up call. Church, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me say enough times, 
we need a wake up call. Now there should have been a good hearty amen from somebody out there this morning. We need a wake up call. We have to recognize what's going on in our world. We have to recognize how well and how parallel this prophecy fits to the day and age that we are in now. The times have changed. Wake up, church. Wake up to the reality. Now, I would say this. It's not all a bad thing to lament. You say, preacher, there's a lot of bad. Absolutely. But I want you to wake up to this. And this reality is, is I think, a good thing. As we talk about who's your one, and, and we have that time of commitment later in the service to pray over our ones, here's the exciting news. There's no shortage of ones. You got all the opportunity in the world. We are not selling ice in Alaska, right? We are selling hope on the doorstep of hell. You see, you see where I'm at? I had a, a professor in college who had formerly been a um, kind of a missionary, kind of a pastor in a very unusual place in the world. He was on uh, one of the Cayman Islands. It was Cayman Brock. Um, I, if I get this right, it was um, three and a half miles long, I think. I, I've heard them say this a hundred times. Um, a, a mile wide and three and a half miles long or something like that. Somebody's looking it up right now. And I'm like, come on. You're gonna shout it out and embarrass me because I got the numbers wrong. There's a small island. There was only a few hundred people on this island at the time that he was there. And there was one church on one end of the island and one church on the other end of the island. And I got to thinking to myself, um, that's a very unusual and unique ministry. And I'm not sure that I would really want to be there in that place myself. In fact, as, as the irony would have it, years after I was in college, um, that, that particular church that he had been the kind of pastor, kind of missionary to um, decades ago, uh, was looking for a new pastor. And um, he had contacted me, reached out to me and, and asked, is this something maybe that you'd be interested in? And listen, I love being on the beach. We just got back from um, some time in Florida, some time on a, a cruise ship and, and in the Bahamas. And I'll tell you what, I, Suzette, she just wanted to read on the seaside. I was like, listen, you can read anywhere, but you can only snorkel a few places. And so I was snorkeling all day long in Bimini last week, all right? Um, but that gets old after a while. And the reason would be there's not a lot of lost people to reach. There's a few and we wanna try to reach them. But i tell you what, I think it's a blessing that we're in a place where it is not hard to be a light. So let your light shine in this world that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not hard to be a light in this world because there's a lot of lost people around us. Church, the times have changed. I would ask the elders in this room, have you ever seen it like this in all of your days? Or how about in all the days of your parents? And I would venture to guess the answer is no. And so church, first, we need that wake-up call. But then notice, secondly, the destruction was devastating. The destruction was devastating. It was not a pretty picture. So I mentioned earlier, and, and we read in there about these locusts in verse number four, and, and, and there's different types of them described. And, and here's the reality. If, if we've got different people reading in different translations, um, you probably noticed 
that the words used are translated very differently between those four different types of locust. Uh, some palmer worm, um, all, all different kinds of things. Some may just say grasshoppers. What we do know is this, there's four archaic Hebrew words that are used to describe these four different locusts. Um, the, the best we can get is that they're different phases of the same type of locust, different life phases as they grew and matured um, and, and, and did this. What we do know is this, what we do know is that these four different waves of the, of the plague as they're coming through, these four different types of locusts as are coming through, they were eating everything that was left. They were completely devastating the land. The, the one wave would have been bad enough by itself. Two was destruction upon destruction. Three was unfathomable, but four was absolute misery. There was nothing left. He even, Joel describes the trees as being white because they got finished eating everything that was green and they stripped the bark off of the trees. So as he describes this devastation, this destruction and how complete and total it is, I honestly, I don't believe we even have a full understanding to, 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 to comprehend how bad this was. Let me, let me show you some pictures of what these, these locusts were. Are we good to do that? Okay, we're good. Um, so th this first picture is this. It's a zoomed in picture of what these locusts would look like. And I, I wanna show you this. They're small, they're not that big, right? They're a little bit bigger than what we would estimate as grasshoppers. And so maybe about an inch and a half to two inches long, it fully developed um, a life, life cycle. And th this is what they were looking at. You say, well, that's harmless. I could step on that. This is what a swarm of them would look like in the Middle East. Go ahead and put the next picture up. It literally darkened the sky. We're not talking about a few grasshoppers that were just a nuisance or an irritation. It literally blackened the sky. When these things came in, they were almost, I would even venture, it was almost worse than an invading human army because the devastation that they left behind had no concept or care for human life. These, these creatures just wanted to live. They, they did not care about anything or anyone else. You say, well, what exactly? I mean, that's still just this picture. Look at it. It just looks like a black sky. It looks like you're driving through Florida in love bug season and that's your windshield, right? But, but think, think this through. This is what they ate. Put this last picture up and show this. This is the before and after of what an invasion of these locusts look like. And this is a real thing, by the way. This is not something that we just read about. This is, this is modern pictures, and, and these things, the accounts of these things coming through are real. On the one side, you see the before where it's green. On the other side, that's not a black and white picture. That's the, they ate everything green in sight. And it, that was one wave, I assume, in this picture. That's one wave. There was four waves of this thing. They destroyed every living green plant life, plant life that they could find. Completely total, utter destruction. You say, listen, pastor, we're used to having famine. We still experience famine and drought. 
in our land? Yes, but we have some things that make this a lot easier on humanity today. We have airplanes, trains, cars, semi-trucks, boats that can bring food from, from far reaches of the world. It's, it's highly unlikely that the entire world experiences a drought all at once, apart from the hand of God. Whereas back in those days, if this happens, they are cut off. They can't, they can't bring in a chain of semi-trucks to bring food from 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 miles away. If there's a, if there's a drought or a, a famine in any part of the world, we could have food to them from the other side of the world in 24 hours or less. This was not possible back then. So the destruction that they faced was so complete and so widespread. They knew what was, here's what they knew. They knew starvation is coming. This was not hypothetical. This was staring them right in the face. They knew, and here's, here's the extreme nature of this. They knew that it wasn't just this season, but it would be seasons of harvest to come. You know, the, I think maybe one of the closest things we can compare to this would, would be here. Um, let's see, it's been five, six years ago, a, a hurricane came up through the Gulf of Mexico and traversed across um, southern and middle Georgia. This is not an unusual thing, but one of the things that this particular hurricane did, and it was a tropical storm by the time it hit Georgia, but one of the things that it did is it wiped out massive numbers of those pecan groves down in South Georgia. You, you remember what I'm talking about? Any of you that like to, um, you know, make pecan pies or, um, or, or candy pecans or whatever it is, you would know the prices of pecans skyrocketed. You remember this? They just skyrocketed two, three, four times the price. You go look at a bag of them, and you're like, how in the world does this little bag cost this much? And what happened was it knocked over so many trees. That affects the harvest for years to come. Here we are, we're like four, five, six years past removed from this. And I was driving through South Georgia a few weeks ago and I, I was driving by all of these, these trees in groves that were they, were, they were getting up there, they were growing up. And I pointed out, I had one of my kids in the car with me, I pointed it out and I said, you see those? And they said, yeah. And they said, what are they? I said, I think, I, I think those are pecan groves being grown up and being nurtured. And they were watching out for them. They had some protection around them and all that. And I said, let me tell you a story. And I told them about that storm that came through. I said, we are still trying to build back that industry. It's been several years. And we have all these advancements in technology and agriculture and, 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 and all of this that we have built on in our world that we enjoy. Imagine being without that and so he describes the destruction. Look, look at the, the, the development of it through the passage. Verse five, there's no more wine. And so the person who drinks the wine, he called, well, in this passage, not just the person who drinks the wine, but the drunkard, he calls them out and he said, listen, you're in trouble. What, what is this a reference to? It's a reference to the fact that the carefree, gluttonous prosperity that they had previously enjoyed was gone. 
Then in verse number seven, verses number 10 through 12, he describes the vines and the fruit trees and the fields, how they are destroyed. This is a solemn prediction that this would not be a short-lived famine. It would take years to regrow what was lost. And in those years of famine, they would be extremely vulnerable to outside invasion. Verse number nine and 13, the temple offerings, the grain offerings would be cut off from the temple, representing that the people were cut off from the Lord. This was a solemn thing for those who were still loyal to the one true God in this time period because their connection to God came through those sacrifices that they made to him. And those sacrifices being cut off meant that their access to God had been cut off. Mm. What, a, what a heavy prediction or, 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 or place that these people were in. Not having the offering to them and their understanding and the way that the Old Testament sacrifices were laid out, not having these offerings meant that they could not make amends for their sin before the Lord. That's what this equated to in their minds and in their understanding of the sacrifice system. It was just a grim reality maybe, maybe, maybe we could halfway understand this and only halfway because we have such a greater understanding of how we have access through God, through Jesus Christ, but maybe we could even begin to understand how difficult this was for them because of what we went through with lockdowns and shutdowns and, and, and church doors closed during the pandemic. But, but even then, I don't think we fully comprehend how burdensome this was to them. Verses 18 through 20, even the livestock and the earth itself were groaning under the burden of this plague. So if it wasn't bad enough that all the grain and fruit harvest that they had was cut off, even what their cattle would eat was gone. And surely this would starve and diminish the population of livestock for them, which meant that it would be even longer before they could have any hope of rebuilding after this. So with all of that said and done, what do you do with that? Where, Where do you even turn? Where do you even begin to, I mean, for many, it would just be like, well, let me just roll over and die. Let me just give up because this is so bad. How can it get better? And in the midst of this passage, we get verses 13 through 15, which is, which is just this answer that Joel gives, this word of the Lord. Where do we turn and what do we do? And so number three, let's look at the solution was issued. Read those verses again. He says, gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. 
Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. The solution was simple. There's two, two sides to this answer here that he gives the people. The first side is this, mourn that loss. Mourn the loss of what was. You know, they, they tell you when um, change is happening, in order for a change to happen and be complete, you have to mourn what was, what was in the past. And that's a, a reality. When things change, you do have to mourn it. You've ever experienced change in your life. You have to recognize um, what was cannot be anymore. When Suzette and I were getting ready to have kids, we, um, we you know, were talking through this process and um, uh, there was a little bit of hesitation. We had spent three years in marriage, just the two of us, and there was a nice freedom about that. I'm not gonna lie. My oldest that ruined it all is sitting right here, bless her heart. Um, but there was, a, there was a freedom in that. We could get up on a weekend, we could drive and go, uh, go out of town, go spend the weekend together, go see family out of town. And just, it was easy. I remember this. I remember we'd wake up the morning, we were gonna go away for a weekend. We're getting ready for work and we'd grab one little duffel bag, throw it in the trunk. And after work, we'd get in the car and go. And that was it. That was all we needed. It was so simple. And I'm gonna be honest. I was super looking forward to having kids, but I had to mourn the loss of that freedom because it was kind of nice. It, it really was. And those of y'all that know me well, you know I love having kids. I love my children. I love being around them. We were gone from them for, for uh, more days than I can count while we were on vacation. We went on that cruise and we were, it was just two of us. And I, I missed them. I really did. I missed my kids. But I do remember at that point, before we had gotten to that what was coming, we had to say goodbye to what was. It's a process of change. And I, I, I mourned that a little bit. And when the world changes, you do have to mourn it. They said, put the sackcloth on. Go grieve. Go mourn, go, go, go weep over what was. But it doesn't stop there, church. If things are changing in your world, if, if, if you've experienced loss, if you've been cut off from joy and gladness, if there's a part of your life that has been wrecked, maybe you've lost your job, maybe you lost a family member, maybe, maybe um, you've had a, a major life change, mourn it, grieve it. Weep over it. It's not a bad thing. But then don't forget the second part of this. After they, they mourn the loss, the next verse, turn to the Lord, turn to your father. Consecrate that fast and call that solemn assembly and come before the Lord your God and cry out to him. Call out his name and turn to him. Sometimes I think God wants us to go through suffering and grief and loss 
so that we do turn to him more and trust in him more and depend on him more because that's the source of true joy and gladness. And that's where we need to turn. It's the ultimate and only source of hope. That verse that says that the people have been cut off from the land and then he says, joy and gladness cut off from the house of the Lord is a grim reminder. It's a wake up call for us, church. And we ought to be alerted and on edge, the edge of our seats, it's a battle cry. And here's the ultimate battle cry. The vast majority of our neighbors are on a fast track to hell. The vast majority of our neighbors are suffering and they're, they're beelining to eternal judgment. The end of Joel speaks of that valley of decision the dividing line. And the real question is this, where will you, what side will you be on in that final judgment, that final valley of decision? Where will your neighbor, your friend, your one be on? As we prepare for our invitation this morning, I wanna share this with you. We enter this, who's your one? You've got the prayer guides. Here's how to use them. There's daily prayer for your one every day. As I read through my Bible, I've done this now uh, five times, I think, five consecutive years since they started Who's Your One? And as I read through my Bible, occasionally I come across one of those passages that's in that booklet in one of the days of prayer. And, and I have sometimes little notes written in the margin next to it. Notes like, you know, where will my one be when the Lord comes back? And, and just, just things like that. And I, and I come through them and it's a reminder to me to pray for my ones. And so as we, as we come into the invitation, I wanna remind you there's only one source of hope in this world and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't made amends with God through Christ, today is the day to do that. Don't wait another moment. True joy and gladness can only come from a relationship with God in heaven through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. There's no other way, there's no other hope, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And then for the church here this morning, the believers in the room, we encourage everyone to have a one. You say, preacher, my one didn't get saved in the last year. 30 something orange tags on the board back there represent those that either we found out were already saved or those that made decisions for Christ in the last year. Isn't that awesome? Amen. You say, my one didn't get saved. My, my one hadn't accepted Christ. What do I do? You can do what I do and you can add another name to it and pray for two this year. Or, you can pick the same one and have the same, the, the same one again until they, until they come to Christ. W whatever you do, just make sure you have a one, whatever you do with that. And so here's what's gonna happen. During the invitation, we're gonna have a regular, normal invitation, um, so to speak, and, and, and the worship team's gonna come up. They're gonna sing. We're gonna sing together. 
We have um, space in the song where if we need to, it can go long. And uh, what I wanna encourage you is this. There's the blue tags. Remember, blue tag stands for a, a one that we've committed to pray for. And I want you to take a blue tag and I want you to go, um, there, you have to use the markers that are on the, the back table and write the name of your one on there and clip it somewhere to the board and then write the name of your one on that card that's in your booklet. And you take that card with you wherever you go as a reminder to pray for your one, as a reminder to share the gospel with your one, okay? And then when you share the gospel with your one, you come back to church sometime, you fill out the silver tag. That represents somebody you have shared the gospel with. And then if they make a decision for Christ, or if you find out that they're already a believer, that's when you fill out an orange tag and you celebrate their salvation. And so this is, this is what we're gonna do. So during the invitation, I want um, you to take a moment and, and slip back to the back. You don't have to go all at once, but we encourage everybody to put a blue tag, a commitment on the wall back there. But more important, it's a commitment before the Lord. You're welcome to come to the altar and pray over your one this morning. This year's a special one for me. In all the years that I've done this, I, I always pray for my kids to accept Christ as their savior. But in all the years that I've done this, the Lord's never prompted me to specifically pick out one of my children and, and have them as the, the one on the card. Um, and so this year, as I was praying over it, Lord, who, who should my one be this year? This year, the Lord put my Josiah on my heart, so he'll be my one. If you, don't, if you don't know of anyone, you don't have anyone, here's what I would encourage you. Go to one of our Sunday school teachers, our children's Sunday school teachers, our youth Sunday school teachers, Go to one of our people in our preschool department and say, hey, I need a, a child or a youth that's not saved, not made a decision for Christ in our church. I'm gonna pray for that person. But we just encourage you as a church, let's everybody have a one. If you're able, would you stand with me? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. God, give us a heart. Give us a burden for the lost in our world. Lord, help us to have a desire, a passion for being witnesses. You, you commissioned us to be witnesses to all of the world, the uttermost part of the world. And sometimes, God, it's easier to go on a missions trip to Honduras or Thailand or Timbuktu and share the gospel with somebody we don't know than it is to walk across the street and share the gospel with somebody that we know very well. And so, Lord, we ask you, because we know we can't do it in the power of our own strength. We know we shouldn't do it in the power of our own strength. We ask you to embolden us, fill us with your Holy Spirit to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Is the music begins this morning. Again, the, the wall is open. Take some time. Go as a family and uh, pin your tags to the back. You can come up, pray over your one here. You can pray over your one at the wall back there. Um, this is a little bit different because we have a normal invitation going on, but this is a special time as a church to make these commitments and, and to, to pray over our ones and then begin to pray over them for 30 days, but really all year, but this 30 days of commitment time. And so I encourage you, listen, don't worry about what anybody's doing or, or looking or whatever. It's a time of movement. It's a time of action. Um, as we sing together, as we pray together, 
And as we make those commitments for our ones on the wall back there,